All right, well, two lines from that hymn really kind of capture the essence of these texts. So that wishful eye and then the, sh the one eternal day shining across the plains. And I'll, I'll kind of explain why after we pray. So, Father, we are looking through a glass darkly still, and we need you to shine your glory, shine the light of your glory on these texts and in our hearts today. Help us to understand them better and to see you more fully through them. And I pray that you would uh, establish the work of my hands here. These words of mine are like clay, but you can make them gold. And I pray that you would do that, use them to help us see your glory and to long for the day when we can behold you, your unveiled glory in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so glory, like the brightness of that one eternal day in the song, and longing, like the hymnist cast that wishful eye across to the Canaan land, that's what these texts are all about. And that's what I want you to leave with today. I want you to have a glimpse of God's glory and to leave with just a longing to be with him forever. So glory and longing, those two ideas saturate these texts. We see glory in the brightness and the beauty of the gold furnishings in the tabernacle. We see the beauty in the opulent fabrics and the lampstand. There's even a glory to these sacred rituals of the priest. And then we see the glory of God actually settling on Mount Sinai, right? He comes down in a blazing fire, and then that glory is later reflected in Moses' face. And then at the end of the book, the glory of God will fill the tabernacle, so much so that Moses can't even get inside. So there is so much hope and so much glory in these texts. I mean, God was going to be Israel's home, right? And they would be his precious people. He was going to go with them to the promised land where the, he would drive out their enemies and establish their kingdom. And then they would build God's temple on a mountain there. And that temple would just serve as a beacon to the watching world to come worship Yahweh, the great God of Israel. God would bless his people and they in turn, as priests of God, would bless all the nations of the earth. And this would fulfill God's covenant with Abraham. And this tabernacle was just the beginning of this glorious covenant. It was, as we saw two weeks ago, an Eden rebirth. But though there is so much hope and beauty and glory in these texts, something's not quite right. Well, for one, Israel couldn't even bear to hear God speak to them directly. You remember that? In fact, they were afraid of just the residue of God's glory on Moses' face. And then there were all these prohibitions. Stay back, keep out, don't touch, bring the right sacrifice, sprinkle the blood, wash yourselves, obey these commands. Okay, this is not Eden, and nor could it be Eden again, because God's people were not what they were created to be. Sin is this giant impediment keeping God from dwelling with his people. So although there is hope in this glorious new beginning, the tabernacle and narrative is infused with longing for something better, for a longing for Eden to be fully restored. 
So maybe you remember the scene in Ezra 3 when the returned people of God, they've come back from their exile in Babylon and they've rebuilt the temple foundations and they gather to celebrate it and they're so excited. But the elderly people who had lived through the exile and they had lived long enough to have seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory, they wept because they knew this new temple would, ne could never, would only ever be just the shadow of its former glory. Well, I bet if Adam and Eve had been around to see the tabernacle built, they would have come in hope, but they would have left in tears, weeping once more for all they had left, lost in their exile from the garden. It just wasn't the same. And so a spirit of longing for Eden kind of perfumes the air of, this t of these texts like the incense would have perfumed the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the Old Covenant, it represented, were glorious. I mean, sacred and beautiful, and it came with such good promises. I mean, such bounty God promised his people if they would only obey. He promised fruitful fields and vines, fruitful livestock, fruitful wombs. He promised to bless their kneading bowls. Every part of their life would be blessed. There would be an absence of disease and famine and enemies. God was promising them rest, rest like he had enjoyed after he created the world. But again, there were all these hints that this was going to go very wrong. This was just not going to work. God knew it, and Moses even knew it. In fact, some of his final words to Israel were, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. That's from Deuteronomy 31. So if this glorious covenant was kind of doomed from the beginning... What was the purpose of the tabernacle? Well, as we learned two weeks ago, the tabernacle is a preview of how God will recover all that was lost in Eden. In the tabernacle, we see God's desire and we see his commitment to be with his people marred even as they are by sin. God will make every necessary provision. He will spare no cost, no expense to make this happen. And the tabernacle previews how God ultimately will recover Eden. So the tabernacle, as I said last week, it at once looks back with longing to Eden, but it also looks forward with longing for new creation when Eden is finally and truly restored and even surpassed, as we'll see. Okay, today we're going to break the material down into three sections. So first we're going to discuss the structure of the tabernacle, and then we'll discuss the pattern for the tabernacle before finally talking about the fulfillment of it. So I couldn't really find any nice way to alliterate these. Instead, you have an acronym, SPF. So instead of sun protection factor, you have structure, pattern, and fulfillment. But first, the structure. And here we'll see that even in the structure, the tabernacle points to a hard reality about life east of Eden. So the tabernacle proper was a rectangular tent. 
It was made up of vertical and horizontal support beams, plus special corner pieces, and all of these things had their own bases, which would give the tent shape and support. And then four layers of curtains hung and then draped over the structure to protect and conceal its interior. It was roughly 810 square feet. So that's bigger than like this tiny house phenomenon that's kind of taking over the nation, but smaller than your average 1950s American home. And I know that because the first house we bought was a 1950s brick ranch and it had 980 square feet. <laughs> so this is small by today's house standards, but that is because it is meant to be easily disassembled and carried and reassembled. This construction needed to be portable. Now the tabernacle would come to be called the tent of meeting. So presumably that old temporary tent of meeting that Moses erected in the camp um, was just kind of dispensed with because hereafter God will speak with Moses from above the cherubim in the tabernacle. Sometimes this, the tabernacle is just called the tent, though. Okay, the focal point of the tabernacle is the most holy place. This is the square interior room which housed the ark, the footstool of God's heavenly throne with the bowing cherubim, which they guarded access to God, and they protected his covenant. Well, the most holy place was curtained off with a veil in which the images of the cherubim were also woven into the purple fabrics, preventing the priests from entering and seeing God's presence there above the ark. And the gold furnishings and the purple fabrics suggested royalty. This is, after all, the dwelling place of a king. Well, just outside the veil is a rectangular room called the holy place. And two weeks ago, we concentrated on this room, and we talked about the furniture in there. So we talked about the table, the showbread, and the golden lampstand. But we didn't talk about the third piece of furniture in this room, and that is the golden altar of incense, which sits just in front of the veil in the holy place. Now, I know some of you are wondering, because you did your homework, and you probably recognize that the author of Hebrews puts this altar in the most holy place with the ark. So just three little points about this to address that issue. Why does he do that? Well, there is some disagreement among the ancient manuscripts about the precise location of this altar. But since the priests had to daily minister at this altar and they weren't allowed into the most holy place, it most likely was in the holy place. But this altar played a key role on the Day of Atonement. So maybe the author of Hebrews is placing the altar in the most holy place to, so that we closely associate it with the Day of Atonement. Or maybe he places it in the most holy place because of its location before the throne of God in heaven. It is directly in God's presence there. But bottom line, this is a small discrepancy between those ma ancient manuscripts, and it doesn't affect our doctrine or even our understanding of the significance of this altar. But back to the altar. So as I said, the priests would tend this altar morning and evening so that an incense cloud would rise up in front of the veil as just one more way to obscure God's glory to them. And then once a year, on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest entered the most holy place, he would take fire and incense from the altar and burn it when he, he entered. He would do this so that the cloud of incense would conceal, again, God's presence above the cherubim for him. And this was God's command to protect the high priest. 
Much like God had protected Moses from seeing his glory, he is protecting the high priest from the deadly fire of his glory with this incense cloud. So this incense cloud should remind us of the cloud that led Israel by day through the wilderness. It reminds us of that glory, the glory of God that settled on Mount Sinai. It was in a blaze of fire, but there was thick smoke around it so that they couldn't see in. Um, it should remind us of the cloud that would come to the tent of meeting and speak to Moses there. Uh, but what we learn from this is that God consistently conceals and obscures his glory in this way so that the fire of his presence does not break out and consume sinful people. In fact, even when Jesus became flesh and he tabernacled among us and his disciples beheld his glory, as the Apostle John tells us, his glory was veiled in flesh. We, we sing that every year at Christmas, <laughs> that line, so that even his disciples, except for a brief moment at his transfiguration, really could not see his full glory. And what's true about the incense cloud is true generally about the tabernacle. Glorious as this structure was, it is meant to obscure and conceal God's glory for the protection of his people. They cannot go right into his presence as Adam and Eve did in the garden. But more than that, the incense cloud isn't just for protection. King David actually connected the incense with his prayers. So in Psalm 141.2, he prays, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And then in Luke 1, we see that God's people are in the habit of praying at the hour of incense. So there's this uh, story about Zechariah. When he enters the temple, he's on his priestly duties that week. He goes in to light the incense at the golden altar, and all the people outside are praying as he goes. And I, so their prayers are being united with the incense. The two are connected. And isn't it interesting that at that point, when Zechariah goes in to light the incense and all the people are praying outside, God actually sends Gabriel in this narrative to tell them, I'm answering your prayers. I am sending John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord. Okay, but this golden altar, besides being protection and being associated with our prayers, it is actually one of our distinct connections to Revelation and the heavenly temple. So in John's end of time as we know it vision, this is from Revelation 8, 3, there is a golden altar directly before the throne from which an angel takes a censer of fire and is given incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. So the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints rise directly before God's presence, filling his nostrils with their perfume, if he had nostrils. But this golden altar in the tabernacle represents a heavenly reality for us then, that our prayers have direct and immediate access to God. They rise like smoke from the altar before his throne. He sees, he hears, and he smells them. Their sweet fragrance permeates his heavenly dwelling place. And Revelation 5.8 draws a further picture of how God collects our prayers in incense bowls. You know, so while he buries our sins in the deepest sea, forgotten forever, he collects every word we've ever spoken to him. 
He remembers every prayer you have ever uttered, like from those spontaneous outbursts of gratitude to just the grieved and pained expressions of doubt. He collects them all, and they perfume the air of his home. Well, because of this incense, the tabernacle would have had a distinct aroma, right? Just like our homes each have a distinct aroma. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Every time we come back from vacation, I'm, I try to smell my house <laughs> to know what other people smell when they come in. And if you think about it, can't you conjure up the smells of like your childhood? So my grandma's house was lavender and bacon and burnt coffee. <laughs> And when I smell those things, they immediately take me back. And so the tabernacle, too, would have had a distinct smell, and it would have brought that smell, would bring the people home to God. Also, inside the holy place here is the table of showbread and then the golden lampstand. And we learned that both of those suggest God's presence and his communion with his people. So in this tent, we have God speaking from above the cherubim. We have God's people eating the bread of life in his presence. We have um, the, the light shining on them, leading and guiding them. And then you have prayers rising like incense, like full-orbed communication. Communion is happening here in this tabernacle. And it is a glorious thing. But even here, we have another hint that all is not right and sin might just undo everything. So God is very specific about this incense recipe. He did not allow any other type of incense to be burned in his presence or to be replicated and used outside the tabernacle. And the risk of doing so was exile, or in the case of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, the risk was death. So I think you know they were likely caught up in the excitement of their ordination as priest, and they just they were not careful. They just grabbed a censer, and scripture says they burn unauthorized fire in God's presence. So it could be they used the wrong incense. It could be that they just didn't burn the incense in the proper place at the golden altar. But whatever the case, their tail, like Uzzah, right, who reached out and studied, tried to keep, prevent the ark from falling, it's a cautionary one. We don't have the freedom of the garden. Because of our sinful condition, we can only approach God on a very narrow pathway that he determines. But God has taken great care in his provision so that we can have the blessing of his presence. But if we, we ignore those provisions to our own peril. So in the case of Nadab and Abihu, fire came out from God and consumed them, just like it had previously, like moments before, come out from him to consume the animal sacrifices. Okay, so we've talked about the shape of the tent and the two interior rooms, but let's make our way outside of the tent. So a screen made of similar colors and fabrics, but without the cherubim, closed off the holy place from view of the courtyard. The third area of the tabernacle in which all ritually clean people were allowed to enter. So this is a large rectangle and it completely envelops the tent of meeting. And the purple color of the screen, so we still have some suggestions of royalty here, but the scarlet color does suggest blood. That is the cost of our being in God's presence. It is the cost of having him pass over our sins to spare our lives. 
Well, the courtyard was enclosed by a series of columns, and these were shorter than the beams of the tabernacle. So even if you're standing outside the courtyard, you could have probably seen the top of the tabernacle. And then linen curtains were strung up on these columns to close off the space. The courtyard had one entrance. We talked about two weeks ago how it faced east, like Eden, and it too had a screen which covered the entrance but did not deny access. And this, this screen too is made up of the same fabrics of the other screen and the veil. But the footings and the overlay of the columns from which they were hanging were of silver and bronze rather than the gold of the tabernacle. Now apparently there were women who ministered here and at the previous tent of meeting. The scripture really gives us no information as to what they did. So I can only speculate, but I kind of imagine them as the front desk staff at a doctor's office. <laughs> so maybe they're collecting and relaying important information, organizing lines, or the order of people going into the courtyard. Maybe they checked for ritual cleanness, made sure people had the right sacrifices. They probably served Moses and the priest by taking care of details. So women doing the important, but sometimes undervalued work of women. And since we just celebrated Easter, when I read this verse, I couldn't help but think of the women who accompanied Jesus on his earthly ministry. They would give from their own money and their skills, following him around, just doing details, helping him out, serving in whatever way they could. And some of these same women were the first to get up on Sunday morning, the moment the Sabbath restrictions were lifted. They raced to Jesus' tomb to do the inglorious work of cleaning a dead body. And what a blessing they received. They were the first to hear the news, and in Mary Magdalene's case, the first to see the risen Lord. So I think these women, too, being so close to the place where God would give his revelation, there was a blessing for them here, too. They were near to, again, to his revelation and to his spokesman, and they were blessed because of it. But whatever their role, God saw fit to memorialize them in scripture. Okay, but once you were in the courtyard, the large wooden altar, this one too overlaid with copper, uh, was the focal point. So this is much larger than the golden altar of the tabernacle. And here, the filthy and bloody work of animal sacrifice was performed. And this altar was like a fixed obstacle between the people and the tabernacle. It bore little resemblance to the ornate gold-bedecked furniture inside the tabernacle. It probably looked more like the homely constructions we see in our homes. In your homework, you noted the decreasing value of the metals used in the tabernacle construction. So here we have bronze pretty exclusively in the courtyard, in the areas of mankind, and gold exclusively in God's presence in the tabernacle, and there is some silver where there is some mingling of the two. So this altar had horns on each of its corners, just like the golden altar did. And though scripture doesn't comment on the significance of these horns, it's hard not to associate them with the rams and the bulls who would drain out their life's blood on the altar, their strength and lives given as a substitute for, our, for us. And here we see an inversion of Eden, right? Adam had been the animal's caretaker. He named them all just like parents named their children. And now these innocent creatures just lay down their lives for the people who should be caring for them. 
But elsewhere in scripture, animal horns are associated with victory and uh, strength in battle. So uh, the Israelites will consistently carry animal horns, like Gideon, his army blew the ram's horns the day they rushed in to defeat the Midianites. And David calls the Lord the horn of his salvation. So, I mean, what do, anim- what do horned animals use their horns for? To kill, to protect. So they came to be a symbol of strength and um, salvation. And then we see how these horns are, at least we get a glimpse of how they're perceived um, from the history of the, in the Old Testament. So in 2 Kings, this is after King David announces that Solomon will be his successor. And he has to make that announcement because his second-born son after Absalom, Adonijah, with the help of Joab, I know it's a lot of names, sorry, <laughs> they have already declared that he will be the king's successor. So David makes the announcement, no, it's Solomon. And Adonijah flees for his life to the altar, and he grabs hold of the horns on the altar, hoping they will be his salvation. But here at this altar, God's anger toward man for his sin would be redirected toward the animal sacrifices. So as their lives drained out with their blood, God's anger would turn from Israel's sins. And in the case of the burnt offering, we actually see the fire of God's anger burning and consuming the animal sacrifices instead of the ones who are guilty. Well, behind this altar, so between, between the altar and the entrance to the tabernacle stood the bronze basin. And this was crafted, as you saw, from the polished or excuse me, bronze mirrors of these ministering women. Again, we have bronze material in the courtyard where people were able to move around. Well, this bronze basin is here because people have to be cleansed to be in God's presence. And that's what this was for, for the priests to wash themselves, specifically their hands and feet, before they could enter the holy place. Neglecting to do so meant death. They were not allowed to bring the filth of sin and death into God's dwelling place. This basin in Solomon's time would come to be called the sea. He makes a a huge basin for the priest to wash in, and it would rest on 12 bowls. But because it's called the sea, many scholars have come to understand this courtyard as representing the earth in the sea together, so the place where mankind lives and has its domain, while the tabernacle represents the heavens. So the holy place would be the visible heavens, and we talked a little bit last week, two weeks ago, about the golden lampstand and how it might represent the seven visible lights of heaven that they could see, the earth, the sun, the moon, and, the, and five planets. So the heavenly place represented the visible heavens, and then the most holy place would be God's unseen heavenly dwelling. And God does repeatedly, I counted at least six times in the chapters where he's relaying the instructions to Moses, he repeatedly says, build it after the pattern I showed you on the mountain. And then Hebrews 9 teaches us that the tabernacle was in some ways a copy of heavenly things. So we come to understand that the tabernacle was designed as a mini replica of God's heavenly dwelling. So we're going to turn our attention now to the pattern of the tabernacle. 
how does this tabernacle resemble God's heavenly home? Okay, well, if we squint at the fuzzy image on the old TV, remember from two weeks ago, we can begin to make out the true form of the realities, as Hebrew call, Hebrews calls them. In this pattern section, we're going to look primarily at how this earthly dwelling of the Lord's is a pattern and copy of God's heavenly home, but we're also going to see Eden woven into the design as well. We'll see how its location, its decorations, its dimensions, and its celebrations all point to an end-of-time heavenly reality. So let's talk location. God's tabernacle was his portable dwelling place, which marched with Israel from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land, where God intended for it to come to its rest on another mountain, this time in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. So God's earthly dwelling place was to be on a mountain. Did you know that Eden, too, was on a mountain? Look with me at those verses on your handout from Ezekiel 28, 13, and 14. So a lot of, again, there's some disagreement among theologians here whether these verses are referring to the fall of Satan or the fall of Adam. And you don't really have to make that choice to understand, though, that they are describing Eden. So let's start in verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And then we read a list that if it isn't already, will become familiar to you. So sardius, uh, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On that day you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were anointed a guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. So that verse connects the holy mountain of God back to Eden, the garden of God. So just reading those verses, I hope your mind is kind of buzzing with Eden, tabernacle, and heavenly city overlaps. But what I want you to notice first is that this created being was placed in Eden, the garden of God, which is on the holy mountain of God. So Eden's on a mountain, the tabernacle was crafted at a mountain, and God's presence would dwell in the temple on Mount Zion. And we know from the book of Revelation that the New Jerusalem, the city of God, is also described as being on a mountain. So Revelation 21.10, John is carried away in his spirit to a great high mountain to see the holy city of Jerusalem. Hebrews 12.22 says a similar thing. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So the Bible begins with God dwelling on a mountain with his people, and it ends with God dwelling on a mountain with his people. But here in the middle of the story, we have God on yet another mountain, giving instructions for the building of his earthly dwelling. Michael Morales, he's a theologian who teaches at a seminary in South Carolina, but he wrote a book on Leviticus called Who Can Ascend the Mount of the Lord? And he describes the tabernacle as a mountain. And I think it's pretty compelling. I'll explain it to you. It's a mountain, but it's a mountain on its side. So the pinnacle, of course, is the most holy place where the fiery presence of God dwelt, just as it had on Mount Sinai. It's on the top of Mount Sinai, and it will come to be in the most holy place in the tabernacle, the mountain on its side. And the Israelites could see, could see the fire of this presence. Remember Exodus 24? 
Okay, but the holy place of the tabernacle corresponds to the middle of the mountain, halfway up, where again in Exodus 24, the elders ate a meal in God's presence. And the middle of the tabernacle is where the priests are able to eat in God's presence at the table of the showbread. And then Israel camped at the base of the mountain, and they even built an altar there. So that would correspond with the tabernacle, where the people of God were allowed to be, and there was an altar. But they cannot ascend the mountain, and they cannot go into the tabernacle. So bottom line here, the location of God on the mountain in Exodus points us back to Eden once more and forward to the heavenly city. But so does the decoration of the tabernacle. So in, that, in those Ezekiel verses, where else have you seen this list of precious stones? If you haven't yet, you will see them this week when you do your homework, because in Exodus 39.8, those exact same stones are set in gold in Aaron's breastpiece. But we also see these precious stones set in gold in Revelation 21, where the heavenly city of God is made of pure gold, and in verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, and we get a similar list of 12 precious stones. So the gold of the tabernacle and the precious jewels on Aaron's breastpiece were at once reminiscent of Eden and a preview of the heavenly city. And so, too, were the dimensions of the tabernacle. So the most holy place was a small square room. It was about 15 feet by 15 feet. And then when Solomon built the temple, he built the most holy place as a perfect cube, 30 by 30 by 30 feet. And what do we find when we get to Revelation 21? You find an angel with a gold measuring rod, and he is measuring the city. And it, we come to find out it, too, is a perfect cube. But this most holy place is different from the tabernacle because all of God's people are in it with him. Finally, there is a parallel in the celebration. So in Genesis 2, 18 through 24, where we celebrate the very first marriage, then Exodus 24 confirms and celebrates the covenant, this exclusive relationship between God and his people. And then that is consummated with the building of the tabernacle and the consecration of the priest. Well, Revelation 19 celebrates another marriage when we, the bride of Christ, will adorn ourselves in bright and pure linen and feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So the tabernacle and all its trappings preview the glory and the goodness of heaven where Eden is remade even better than it was before. You know, two weeks ago, someone told me that the last lesson was rapid fire. <laughs> and I know that's true, and I'm a little bit sorry about that. But I, I feel like I'm barely scratching the surface here. I haven't even mentioned the seven golden lampstands. So when John gets to heaven, he sees Jesus walking among these seven golden lampstands. He's wearing a long white robe with a gold sash, and his feet are made of bronze. I haven't said that John doesn't even doesn't see a temple in heaven because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I haven't said that the city has no need of the sun or the moon, which God created to give light to Eden, and there's no need for a lamp from the tabernacle, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
These city gates are never shut. There is no screen or veil or obstacle of any kind. And all the nations of all the earth pour into this mountain city to live in this one eternal day. But the tabernacle points and it hints at all these great realities. But how is this possible? How can we move from standing in the tabernacle courtyard sprinkled with animal blood to standing in God's presence in the most holy place of heaven without being consumed by the glory of God? Sin is and always has been the impediment to God's dwelling with his people. Sin is the problem, and the continual sacrificing of animals could never solve the problem because animal blood has no power to change a rebel's heart. So now we're going to talk about the fulfillment of the tabernacle. If the problem with the tabernacle is sin, the solution, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus is everywhere in these texts. He is the tabernacle, the glory of God veiled in flesh, walking among his people. His flesh, like the veil, is torn, just like the temple veil, signaling that we can now stand directly in God's presence without fear of being consumed. He is the blameless, sacrificial lamb which turns away God's anger, but he is also the priest interceding for us and offering his blood for the sacrifice. He is our better Moses, speaking the words of God to us. He is the very word of God. He is the horn of our salvation. He is the bread of life. He is the light of the world, which the darkness can never snuff out. It's his blood that fills the basin where we wash ourselves clean. In Jesus, the glory of the tabernacle finds its true meaning. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus redeemed us from all wickedness to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So the reason we can stand in God's presence is because Jesus has taken care of the impediment of sin. He has remade us. We have been recreated in his image so the stain of Adam's sin is gone. The power of the curse broken. We are no longer stiff-necked, rebellious people. Instead, as Titus 2 describes us, we are eager to do what is good. And it is because of this recreation that one day we will stand in the most holy place and see the unobscured glory of God with our own eyes, without any fear or any guilt. So glory on the one hand and longing on the other, that is what this tabernacle shows us. But until we see God's unobscured glory, we wait and we pray and we long for heaven and we live and, and we do the good priestly work of showing this dark world the light of Jesus. Let's pray. Glorious Father, how can we thank you enough for destroying the sin that prevented our seeing your glory? 
Give us grace as we leave today to, to live in this reality that our sin is gone. There is now no more condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And help us to live as the new creations we are. We are holy. We are your holy, purified people. Help us to live that way. Help us to see and to know and to recognize that power that you are working in us, just like the power you use when you raise Jesus from the dead. That power is in us to do what is right and to do good. So give us strength today as we go to live in this reality. In Jesus' name, amen.